Well, we're in Revelation chapter 9 tonight. We're going to study the first half of uh, this chapter. And uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Revelation chapter 9. And we'll jump into the book of Revelation. By the way, it's pretty uh, apparent to you now that we are not in any rush to get through the book of Revelation. Uh, so, so, you know, we're just, um, I, I've mapped out the rest of the study, and I think that we end sometime in May. Uh, but it's fun just to take our time to go through this book, is it not? I love the book of Revelation. Um, even the rough stuff. Tonight we're going to talk about some pretty difficult times during the Great Tribulation period. So let's go ahead and pray and we'll jump into the scriptures. Father, we're so thankful, God, that you have preserved your word for us. God, that not only can we look back in history, but we can look forward in time. And God, we know that we know that it's important for us to have an understanding, God, even a firm understanding of what it is that you are going to do. And it reminds us that you know the end from the beginning. God, you know all things all together. And we can put our trust and faith in you as you even declare in great detail what things will look like before the coming of your son before his second advent. And we pray tonight that these verses would do exactly what you want them to do in our hearts. Uh, Father, thank you that your Holy Spirit moves among us. And he tonight is our teacher. And that he is able to perfectly uh, give to us the exact word that our hearts need in such a profound way that we can leave this place knowing that we ourselves personally have heard from you, that you've spoken to us. And so God, we pray that these moments would just be filled with uh, your presence and your power and your transforming work. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, we, we have uh, begun the three woes. And of course, you know, we're in the trumpet judgments uh, we've gone through the seal judgments, the seven seal judgment began the seven trumpet ju judgments, they kind of cascade like that. Um, I did mention to you, it's really not my personal view that these things happen all simultaneously, and just a, just a, you know, a simple reading of scripture definitely lends itself to the idea that these things you know, happen, um, like I said, as if dominoes were falling, so they're they are in sequence. They're in sequential order. And we've already considered four of the trumpet judgments. Now we're looking at three of um, the final trumpet judgments, but they're also called woes. And the reason for that is they are so severe, you know, and you're going to see tonight, you get an understanding as we read tonight why it was that the angels actually were saying you know, three times, woe, 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 for the coming woes that were going to come globally on the people that were living, that will be living on the planet at the time. I mean, they are just so absolutely severe. It is going to be a time of extreme torment. And I just want to give you a heads up, like this chapter reads almost like a horror movie. I don't know if you guys have ever seen a horror movie, I for sure would not advise it tonight, but it is just, you know, I'm sure you see, you see commercials of um, upcoming movies that, you know, are about zombies or whatever, and it just looks grotesque. It looks horrific. Well, you're going to see that um, it's going to be a reality during the Great Tribulation period. 
Uh, and, you know, it, and God is also going to make a distinction between those who aren't his and those who are his. It is so severe, you know, as I was preparing for tonight, just reading a, a couple of different commentaries. Uh, one commentator said this, and, you know, I, I thought it was a really good spiritual insight into why it was that these particular events were happening. He said, when people fail to respond to God's gracious invitation and, and set themselves in opposition to his purposes, then they become the prey of horrifying demonic forces. They suffer the consequence of their choice. And then he wrapped it up by saying, they are not defeating God. Which, you know, sometimes, I'm not saying this is, you know, always the intent of an individual, but sometimes it is that idea, you know, we can be filled with such hubris and such pride and such arrogance that even as the Spirit of God is seeking to minister to us, we can be resistant, we can fight against Him. And when I say we, I'm definitely not talking about the believer, I'm talking about the person in an unregenerate condition or state. And, you know, it, it's just the craziest thing about deception. In that moment, you can actually think you're winning when, in fact, you are absolutely losing. I don't know how many of you, you when you, you weren't a Christian, uh, and, you know, there were maybe people that were ministering to you, or there was, you, you wouldn't really necessarily have known it was this at the time, but there was conviction of sin in your life. And God was drawing, seeking to draw you to himself, and yet, yet in your resistance, you felt like you were winning the battle when in fact you weren't winning, you were losing, and in the process of losing and resisting God, you open yourself up to demonic forces in an even greater scale, uh, which is oftentimes why we see people, you know, not just kind of get close to rock bottom, but really, really hit rock bottom, because the more you resist God, the more you open yourself up to demonic influence. And um, no doubt that there's a, a great percentage of people during the Great Tribulation that will not just be lightly resisting the gospel, they will be adamantly, vigorously, violently opposed to the gospel and to Christians as well. Um, we have, let me, just, let me just read verse one to you. The, the Bible says, then the fifth angel sounded and I saw a star fallen from heaven to, to earth, to the earth, to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. You already know it's gonna be kind of a rugged chapter. Um, but we've seen, you know, as we just kind of tie it back to the last chapter, we saw a great burning mountain that was flying through the atmosphere. We saw another star falling. Of course, you know, those were um, celestial catastrophes, maybe a meteor, maybe, um, or an asteroid. Some say a part of potentially a star. Um, other people say, well, this might be some nuclear catastrophe. Uh, the Bible here, as it begins personifies this star, right? So we have the fifth angel sounding that trumpet. So we know what's being initiated here is the, the fifth trumpet judgment, also the first of the three woes. And John sees this star fallen from heaven to the earth. And what makes this different? Well, you see the masculine personal pronoun here, or the masculine pronoun, to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And so this particular star is not just a celestial object, it is in fact a person. And most commentators believe, it's, it is my view, that we're talking about uh, Satan, we're talking about uh, the anointed cherub, cherub that was formerly called Lucifer. We know for sure that he was fallen from heaven, his name means day star or shining one. 
Uh, we're going to see later on in Revelation chapter 12 that during the tribulation period, and I will just tell you there's, there are difference, differences of opinion on this, uh, but there is a great war in heaven that happens during the great tribulation period, and in that adversarial battle that's probably happening somewhere you know, in our atmosphere, the word heaven uh, actually means three different types of heavens in Scripture. It can mean our atmosphere, it can mean the, um, the universe, and then the third heaven is what you experience at the edge and beyond uh, the universe, which is where the throne of God is. And so in Revelation chapter 12, it would appear that there is a battle between Satan and the fallen angels and um, God and his angels, and he is cast out of heaven again. So the scripture says uh, in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, this is not a new thing for Satan. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. Uh, Ezekiel 28, verse 16 says, you sinned, therefore I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God. Luke chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus himself said that he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Um, I don't believe this to be here in this chapter, the same event as Isaiah, Ezekiel, or Luke, but we know that the adversary never stands a chance against God. You understand that tonight, right? Are you with me? Sometimes it's like, you know, we view, uh, and I've said this a million times, but I will say it again, sometimes we give too much, um, we attribute too much power to Satan. Sometimes we view him as the equal opposite of God or maybe the equal opposite of Jesus, um, if he were to be the equal opposite of anybody, it might be uh, Michael, the archangel. There's still some speculation in that as well. Uh, we, we need to be aware of the wiles of our adversary. We know we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. You know. But at the same time, while we are aware uh, that he's an adversary that seeks to destroy us, we're going to talk about that when we get to the end of the study we don't put ourselves in a place where we're living in fear of the devil or we're overly obsessed with the devil. There are some times when I'm talking to Christians that they talk more about the Antichrist than they do Jesus Christ or they talk more about the devil than they do the Lord. And you know that's never really a healthy place for us to be. In this situation, it would appear that Satan is uh, given the key to the bottomless pit. Well, somebody is given the key to the bottomless pit. Um, it most likely is Satan. Uh, but we're reminded of this place. It's called the bottomless pit here in Revelation chapter 9, something that we've heard of before. Uh, you remember when Jesus was um, casting the demons out of the man from the Gadarenes, uh, the legion of demons said to him, pleaded with him not to cast them into the abuso or into the bottomless pit. Um, we're going to see later on in Revelation chapter 11 and chapter 17 that the beast will ascend up out of uh, the bottomless pit, that is the Antichrist. Uh, we're going to see in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 and 3, that Satan is going to be cast and bound in the bottomless pit for a thousand years. Uh, where is this bottomless pit? Well... It's possible that it's in the center of the earth. Um, if you take Luke chapter 16 literally, uh, Jesus is retelling the story of the rich man Lazarus. He describes a place called Hades, which is the abode of the dead. We know that to be a, a, a literal place. Um, it would appear that there are two compartments in this particular place. One is a, a place called paradise. Jesus mentioned this 
to one of the individuals that was crucified with him when he said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. So this was the place where it's called Abraham's bosom. You know, it was a, a holding compartment for those who were looking forward to the coming of Messiah before the incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Uh, this was the place that they were held until Christ was crucified, and then he led them up, led all those souls up as a first fruits offering to God. There was a great gulf between paradise and a place of torment, which was where the rich man went in Luke chapter 16. Um, and like the scripture says, it is a place of torment. Um, it's possible that the bottomless pit is another compartment somewhere in this particular area. Um, people have all sorts of ideas why it's called the bottomless pit. Maybe because since it's in the center of the earth, you know, you're, you would always be rotating. And so you would, never, you would never be falling just in one direction. I don't know if that's necessarily the case. Uh, what we do know is that the Antichrist uh, is held there. Satan is going to be bound there for a thousand years. And it also is a place where fallen angels are being held as well. As the scripture says, check this out, verse 2. And he opened the bottomless pit and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. So, I mean, this is a, this is a pretty rugged, rugged picture here. Um, this individual, like I said, most likely Satan, unlocks the bottomless pit. He's given the key. He unlocks the bottomless pit, and there's a smoke that arises out of it. So you can imagine uh, this is a smoke in a, a global sense. Maybe something like a volcano, you know, that's obviously localized, but when a volcano erupts, all of the ash fills the air, it obscures the sun, it's possible um, that this particular smoke is going to rise like that volcanic ash, and globally it will obscure the sun. It's not just the smoke that rises up out of the bottomless pit, but there are locusts, and you know, what are these locusts? Well, we know that they have power. Um, and they're like scorpions. They're going to actually sting humans that are living on the face of the planet at the time. Um, but most likely what we're talking about, all sorts of different opinions on this. People have written, you know, lots of books. There could be a movie made up about it. You know, there's probably a hundred different ideas as to what these locusts are. Are they real locusts? Are they demon-possessed locusts? You know, are they helicopters? You know, there's somebody, as we read the description of these locusts later on, it would almost appear as if, you know, these are military vehicles that are going to be involved in some type of uh, global battle. Some people have said, and I think it was Hal Lindsey said, that this, they probably are, are helicopters. My, my personal view is that we're talking about demonic creatures. You know, it seems to be the simple reading of Scripture that held here in the bottomless pit are an innumerable amount of demons, and when the door is open, they are going to literally flood the earth. Check this out, verse 4. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them. This just gets worse. But to torment them for five months 
Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion. When it strikes a man, in those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. Man, that's, that's a horrible picture. I hope you guys have a great sleep tonight, you know, as you just meditate on this portion of, of the word. So, look, my personal view, and for sure you can disagree with me on this, but I think that we're talking about demonic creatures. You know, they're like locusts. Um, if you've ever been in the Middle East during a plague of locusts, you know, it's absolutely miserable from time to time. Have you guys been around Las Vegas when we've had swarms of locusts or what are they called, cicadias or something like that? You know, they're, they're over everything, right? They're on the ground, they're on your car, you turn your windshield wipers on, um, they get all smashed on your, your windshield. It is just nasty. I will tell you what we experience here in Las Vegas is nothing compared to the Middle East. I mean... The swarms of locusts in the Middle East are, they're so dense that literally you can't even see the sun. I mean, they eat everything in their path. They leave a trail, <coughs> excuse me, they devour everything in their path and they leave a trail of destruction. And so if it's that bad with an actual locust, you can imagine how bad it will be with these demonic creatures, most likely, from my point of view, fallen angels. Now, let me just say something about fallen angels. Um, as you think about Revelation chapter 12, of course, we uh, have an inclination from that portion of Scripture that when Satan was cast out of heaven, he drew a third of the angels with him. What happened to all of those angels? Uh, well, we know Satan is not an omnipresent being. The Bible says in the book of Job that he walks to and fro on the face of the earth. And so... Satan, for sure, cannot be um, in every place at the same time. Like I said, he is not omnipresent. Some of those fallen angels have become demons. And, uh, you know, there's a really clear picture of this in the gospel accounts. When Jesus was exercising demon, demons from individuals, <clears throat> sorry, he was exercising fallen angels. Um, all, not all of the fallen angels became demons. We're going to see that some were reserved uh, for judgment later in a different place. Uh, but how many demons are there on the face of planet Earth? Well, the Bible says, and we've talked about this, the heavenly picture is that there are 10,000 times 10,000 angels and thousands of thousands. And I've mentioned to you a number of times, John is just simply saying, hey, think of the highest number you can possibly imagine, multiply that number by itself, and then add a bunch more to it, like literally more than can be numbered. Uh, and so you take a third of something that's innumerable, and I'm just saying, you've got, you have a lot of fallen angels. Some of those angels are, the fallen angels have been arranged by the adversary. Ephesians chapter 6 says that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers rulers of darkness in various places, and so the adversary, Satan, has strategically arranged his demonic army, and, you know, they are strategically seeking to accomplish what his purpose is. What is his purpose? His purpose is to bring glory to himself and to steal as much glory as he can away from God. His purpose is to steal away the good blessings that God has given to his sons and daughters. His purpose is to continue to blind the eyes of those who've not yet seen the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, that's what the Bible says in the book of Corinthians. Thanks. Give him a hand. 
You don't need me. So, where was I? So he has arranged, he, he has a strategic arrangement to, um, to his demonic army. Not all of those fallen angels, obviously, are demons that are arranged in this uh, particular army of the adversary. The Bible says some are actually held in the bottomless pit, and this is where we get to Revelation chapter 9. Um, it is my view that there are, you know, a great number of fallen angels that have been held in this bottomless pit for thousands of years, and, and maybe even particularly for this moment. And then, you know, we also see in 2 Peter chapter 2 and Jude 6 that there are particular angels that are, that are bound, that are so severely destructive. They're, they're bound in chains until the day of judgment. Peter said this in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. And then Jude refers to these particular angels too, when he says, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he is reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day." Um, I'm saying all of that just to kind of give you an idea of what happened to those angels that fell with Lucifer when they rebelled against God. These locusts are given power, uh, so they're in a sense indestructible, like there's no human weapon that's going to be able to destroy them. They're demonic in nature. Um, They're given a command Uh, to not harm the grass or the trees that are left over, because you know, after we've seen so many judgments already, there's not a lot of life left over anyhow. Um, But it is interesting that it signifies they're still under control. And so remember with me that, you know, demonic beings don't just have the freedom to do whatever they want to do. They don't operate outside of the sovereignty of God. God is still sovereign and in control over all things. And not only are they commanded not to harm the grass or the trees, but they're also commanded not to harm those who have the seal of God on their foreheads. And for those of you who are students of the word, like right now, you're you're reminded immediately of how God was able to separate out the Israelites from the Egyptians when the ten plagues uh, fell on the, the nation of Egypt. That, of course, was a localized situation. But even when the sun was obscured during that time, it was obscured to those who were living in unbelief in Egypt, not upon the Israelites. God knows how, this is all I'm saying, God knows how to preserve his people from his wrath. God knows how to make a distinction. We're going to be talking about that on Sunday morning, uh, this coming Sunday, as Abraham is praying and he's, he's interceding for Lot and Lot's family and even in mercy interceding for Sodom and Gomorrah. He bases it on the justice and the righteousness of God and he says, he says, you know, God, surely you're able to make a distinction in your judgment between those who are righteous and those who are unrighteous. Then that begs the question, how do we become righteous in the eyes of God? Certainly it's not by our own works um, or our religious activity because that doesn't make any of us righteous. The Bible says there are none who are righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so we're able to have right standing with God through faith in Jesus Christ. 
And that is how this distinction is going to be made during the Great Tribulation. Um, There are those who are going to have the mark of the beast. They're going to be identified as belonging to Satan. This is not just going to be an accident. It's not like you're going to go to the tattoo parlor one day and get a tattoo and realize, oh, man, bummer, I got the mark of the beast. That's not... That's not the way it works. And I've heard pastors say, hey, listen, be careful. Don't go get a tattoo because you may end up with the mark of the beast. No, that's not going to happen. Like it is, you're going to be making a decision. You're going to be aligning yourself with the Antichrist and the one world system that the Antichrist is establishing. Um, and has that opportunity or option been given yet to people? The answer is no, it hasn't. My view is that we will never see it because we'll be raptured before the tribulation period and we'll be raptured before the Antichrist is revealed. That's, that's my particular take on it, though. Um, we also see, so, you know, these demonic beings, like I said, they, they don't just have the freedom to do whatever they want. They're, they're under control. They're being commanded. Uh, they are not permitted to touch those who have the seal of God upon them but they are given the authority to torment men and women for five months. So they have stings like a scorpion. Anybody here been stung by a scorpion before? Raise your hand. All right, well, Johnny, what was that like? All right, there you have it. From, from, from the mouth of a man who's experienced, it is not, it is not fun. I mean, I, I can't imagine what that was like. We were on a, a walk, Rachel and I were, a couple of months ago, and and, um, you know, just a couple of weeks earlier, a rattlesnake crossed our path, and I almost stepped on the rattlesnake. Um, and then, you know, two weeks later, I almost stepped on a scorpion. And uh, it wouldn't have been good for him because I had nice shoes on. He would have been smushed. But, you know, like, you get stung by a scorpion. How much worse is it than maybe a wasp or a hornet or a bee? These are demonic beings that have the ability, the authority, the power to inflict great pain upon human beings, and not just to sting them once, but to sting them a multiple number of times over the course of five months. Over the course of five months. Like, I'm not saying that you should imagine what that's going to be like, but man, it's sobering. You know, it is sobering, and I think it just kind of goes back to what I had mentioned at the beginning of the message, that, that quote that was given. Hey, when you put yourself in a position where you resist the Lord, you open yourself up to all sorts of demonic activity. And you might be thinking, well, you know, I mean, that sounds kind of rough for God to allow that. We'll, we'll explain that in, in just a minute. How really, as hard as it may be or as hard as it may feel right now to live on this earth, how difficult it is, how challenging it is, how discouraging it is. You know, we're still living under the grace of God because the fact is it could be so much worse. And there's a restraining work of God right now that we have the privilege of experiencing. And you say, well, how do we know that? Because I can contrast it to what's gonna happen here during the great tribulation period where that restraining grace is going to be taken away. And the adversary is going to have, in, in, in a sense, still under the authority and sovereignty of God, he's going to have the ability to do what it is ultimately that he desires to do. It is going to be so bad that people are going to want to take their own lives. So the added difficulty to this situation is that death is going to be put on pause. 
The scripture says here, death is going to be put on pause. If people are going to be so miserable, the torment is going to be so great, it's going to extend over such a long period of time that, that people are going to want to kill themselves, but they won't even be able to do that. It will be a time where it will literally be impossible to die, even if you try. I mean, I can't, I can't fathom what that's going to be like. Some people have said, you know, maybe... To, to, to the degree where someone tries to shoot themselves or something like that. And still, while body parts are missing, while bodies are mangled, there still is not a separation of the soul and the spirit from the physical body because you know God is even in control of that. You know, no wonder why the angel prefaced these final three trump, trumpet judgments as a, a woe. They're going to be so absolutely severe. And you know, Jesus said it. He said there's going to be a time of great tribulation such as the world has never seen before. I mean, it, it does make the flood of Noah pale in comparison because it is stretched out over the course of time. It truly is great tribulation. He goes on to say in verse 7, the shape of the locust was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold. So, hey, just keep in mind that John is looking forward into the future, and he's going to be trying to describe things with terms that he is familiar with in his present, in his context. Like, could you imagine living in uh, 90 A.D.? And then, you know, being transported, in a sense, maybe to 2022. And, you know, you've never seen a rocket before. You've never seen an airplane before. You've never seen missiles before. Uh, you've never seen advanced technology like satellites and iPhones and computers and things like that. But all you have are the words in your limited vocabulary to describe what it is that you're seeing. And that's exactly what John does here. Uh, and so, of course, people are like, well, you know, John was just using terms to describe these things we know, well, we don't know. I mean, we can speculate, but sometimes I'm not really sure if the speculation is helpful. All we know is he was doing his best. So he says, the shape of these locusts, these demonic beings, was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like iron's teeth. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots, with many horses running into battle. They had tails like scorpions, and there were stings in their tails. Their power was to hurt men for five months. Now, like, you get it. You read that and you think, well, I mean, he's describing helicopters in battle, but it's just impossible for us to say. He's just using the terminology that he has to describe something he's never seen before. I personally prefer to keep all of this in the supernatural category. Verse 11. And they had as a king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek he has the name Apollyon. One woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. So the final thing that John says here about this first woe and about this demonic horde is that there is a, a ruling entity over them. Um, and this entity is the angel of the bottomless pit, actually named in Hebrew, Abaddon, in Greek, Apollyon. 
that word in both of those languages uh, means destroyer. There are two views on this. Some people say, well, we're talking about another angel. You know, we're talking about an angel that might be as, as significant in power, but less than uh, Lucifer, maybe similar, like I said, to Michael or Gabriel. Um, some people would put this angelic being in that category. Um, others say, well, no, this is the devil himself. I mean, because the devil really is the destroyer. Um, what we do know is that this particular fallen angel is over uh, these demonic beings. And whether it's an actual other angel or whether it's Satan himself, we know that the purpose is described or defined by the name. And the name means destroyer. And I just simply want to remind us tonight that that is the purpose of the devil in your life. Like the adversary is not your friend. That's why he's called the adversary. He's not, you know, trying to do you any favors. He's not putting temptation before your face so that he can make your life better. The purpose of the devil is to bring destruction. Um, you know that in this time, like I had mentioned, because some people look at this and they, they think, well, you know, why is it that God would allow so much devastation to happen? And the truth is, we're living in a time of God's grace, and there is a preservation, a preserving work of God through his people. You know, the people of God preserve everybody else from the judgment of God. Which is one reason why, you know, people who believe in a pre-tribulational rapture believe that once the church as a preserving agent is taken away, it opens the door for the judgment or the wrath of God to come. Uh, but we really truly are living in an era of grace. Uh, what is our takeaway from these verses? Well, what we take away is uh, some insight as to what it is that the adversary really does desire to do in our life. And yet he doesn't, he doesn't pose like this. He doesn't present himself like this. You know, I've said this a million times as well. I just want to say it again because it's a simple illustration. When the devil comes knocking on your door, he doesn't come in red leotards with a black OT, a pitchfork in his hand, the aroma of sulfur coming from him, presenting himself as the devil. Does he? Does he do that for you guys? No, I mean, he comes subtly. He comes deceptively. He conceals himself. In fact, Paul says this. He was talking about people who are false apostles and false teachers. He says, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. Right? There were people even in the church who were posing to be spiritual authorities, right? Speaking on behalf of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13, if you're interested in this verse. And Paul is saying, you know, it's no wonder. He goes on to say, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light, Therefore, it's no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness whose end will be according to their works. Paul's saying, hey, there are people right now operating within the church itself who are not sent by God, they're sent by the devil. And they've concealed their identity, right? They, they're not openly uh, saying that they're on the devil's side. They've concealed themselves in such a way that they in fact, look like messengers of light, which is exactly what Satan himself is able to do. He transforms himself into an angel of light. And sometimes, you know what he does, he's so deceit, deceitful, he'll take a, a, a whole bunch of lies 
and he'll wrap them in truth so that when you're hearing somebody speak or you're hearing someone teach or you're hearing this new doctrine that's, you know, impacting the church or this new prevalent thing, this new wave in Christianity, you're disarmed because, you know, you, you consider it in a shallow sense and you're like, well, look, there's truth. There's some truth. And so you put your guard down um, because it appears that what is being spoken is true, but you're not taking a deeper look and considering everything that's being spoken. I will tell you, you know, I've been saved for almost 30 years, and I have seen so many winds of doctrine blow through the church. So, so many new things, so many, you know, fads that Christians get engaged in and involved in, and books that are written that Christians buy. And you know, if you just would take the time as you're reading a book or listening to somebody on the internet, if you would just take the time to open the book, open the Bible, right? And then test what's being said. Be like a Berean. Something is being spoken, and well, what, what do you do? Like Paul said of those in Berea, they were more noble-minded than the people of Thessalonica because they searched the scriptures to find out whether it was that what Paul said was actually in the word of God. And you know, we live in such a biblically illiterate era and age. And the word is not necessarily always being taught from behind pulpits. And we can be so easily swayed by emotionalism and our feelings. And don't get me wrong. You know, thank God that we have emotions. Thank God that we have feelings as part of being made in the image of God. But just because something gives you a feeling or an emotion doesn't mean that it's true. You say, but pastor, I got, I got the spirit-filled goosebumps. Well, I don't care, all right? I don't care, if it, I don't care if it makes you feel a certain way. Look, I mean, go to the scripture, make sure it's true, and then enjoy the feeling that God gives to you. But before you buy into it, before you sink your teeth into it, before you allow that doctrine to permeate yourself, before you become someone who proliferates that teaching, make sure it's in the word of God because the last thing that you want to do is to go sideways in your relationship with the Lord and the very last thing that you want to do is to drag a whole bunch of people with you only to find five years down the road that you were wrong the whole time. And you know, I give this exhortation to people. Some people are like, you know, Pastor, why, why don't you do this? Or why aren't you involved in this? And how come, how come we're not doing this? And it's like, well, that's just a, that's a fad. That is a fad, and it's going to be the big thing for two years in Christianity, and you know what? It'll be gone. It'll be gone. And then what will you have left over? Well, you'll have people who have lost two years of growing in their relationship with God. You'll have people who now have uh, allowed false teaching to infect their hearts, and maybe spiritually they've gone sideways. And now you have all of these situations that need to be sorted out because people have bought into something that's not true but, but it's actually false. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? I'm just simply saying as we start this new year, make sure that you're discerning. Make sure that you, know, you have a, a watchful heart as to what it is even in the church that is being embraced and considered to be the new thing. Hey, if it's a new work of the Holy Spirit, thank God I'm all over it. And we know it'll be a new work of the Holy Spirit if it's in fact in alignment with the word of the Lord.
Jesus said this, and you know, I think what Paul was saying was connected to what Jesus said, uh, and it's recorded in John chapter 10, verse 10. Jesus is talking about false teachers as well. In fact, really, he's talking about the Pharisees of the time. And he says, the thief does not come except to steal and kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. So listen, as we wrap this up, I think it's sobering. It's a sobering reminder that the purpose of the adversary is to destroy the good things that God desires to do within our lives. It's a sobering moment to remember that if we've not put our trust and faith in Jesus Christ, you know, if there's a consistent resistance to the gospel in our lives, we are opening ourselves up more and more to the influence of Satan. And it's important for us to remember, really, that the only one that gives life and that much more abundantly is Jesus himself. Are you guys, you guys with me on that? Okay, I know, tough chapter, tough, tough half. But you guys did really good, all right? Let's, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word tonight. And uh, God, it is a sobering portion of scripture not altogether encouraging, but, but it is, God, because you've rescued us and you've delivered us. And God, we, through the work of your son on the cross, have escaped the destructive efforts of Satan. And we're thankful for that tonight. We're thankful for the abundant life that you have blessed us with through the one who is the giver of life the one through whom real life flows. I pray tonight that we would be discerning. I pray that we would not just be easily swept up into the next new thing unless, God, it is your thing. And we want, we're hungry for a fresh work of your Holy Spirit. We also know that your Holy Spirit is going to give glory to your Son. And so we, we, we want that. We ask for that. Not, definitely not for our glory, but for yours and yours alone. Tonight as our eyes are closed and as we're in an attitude of prayer, I'd be remiss this evening if um, there wasn't an opportunity for those of you who have yet to put their trust and faith in Jesus to take that step of faith. And you know, the fact is, you're sitting here in church and that's a good thing, but you know, sitting in a church doesn't save you. Listening to a Bible study doesn't save you. Being surrounded by, by people who are giving God praise in a time of worship doesn't save you. Having certain feelings of elation, spiritual elation, does not save you. The only thing that can save you is Jesus and his work, his sacrifice on the cross for you. And for you to come to that place personally where you say to him, Lord, I want you in my life. I don't want to live in unbelief any longer. I don't want to resist the gospel any longer. I want to turn away from my sin, my sinful lifestyle, and I want to receive you in my life as my Lord and as my Savior. That that is where the abundant life begins. He loves you. That is the truth. That is what the Bible says. God loves you. And tonight, maybe 
what needs to happen in your life is you need to respond to his love. Stop resisting. Stop fighting. Realize tonight is a sobering thought, but realize tonight that the more you do that, the more you open yourself up to the work of the adversary. Tonight, if you need to take the step of faith and trust in Christ, you need to, as I was saying, you need to confess your faith in him and receive him as your Lord and as your Savior. Tonight, I want to pray for you, and I'm going to ask you this evening, right here in this room, right now, right now, because this is not a decision for you to to put off to another time. There's business for you to address with God, and he wants you to do that right now. Tonight, if you want to put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, I want to pray for you, and I'm going to ask you right where you're sitting, would you raise your hand? You just stretch your hand up high. Let me see who you are so I can have the opportunity to pray for you. And Father, we are so thankful, God. You're so good to us. We bless your name, and we pray that in this time of communion that we would just have sweet fellowship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.